Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Dr. Bo Bruce. Don't judge me, because even Jesus or the Bible or my pastor says not to judge. Don't judge me? Have you ever had that thrown back in your face? I have, more than once, and I bet you have too. But does not judging but does not judging mean that if someone just murdered your child that you're not to be upset, not to be righteously angry, not to judge that that action was wrong? Of course not. I can't even believe that there would be any human being who would be so completely cold-blooded to not be indignant at such. And yet when one of our Christian brothers or sisters is doing something discordant with our Lord, I've seen someone invoke those very words when they confronted that person about it in love. It's not our, it is our job not only to correct our brothers and sisters who sin, but to correct the person going around chastising our brother or sister for rightly judging that behavior as wrong. Our salvation, in fact, depends on it. Jesus himself says in Matthew 18, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he doesn't, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So not only are we to judge, but when our brothers and sisters insist on continuing in their wrong ways, we get others to go with us. This doesn't mean we gang up on them. These should not be your close friends who always take your side, but people who are viewed as fair and open-minded in this situation. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That's to say that the group should be made up of faithful witnesses acting in Jesus' name. If once we do that, the one doing the wrong will still not listen, you don't stop there. You pretty much go right to laying it all out in front of the congregation. And know that you have God's very judgment working with you. Why? Doesn't that sound really unmerciful? Perhaps, but it isn't. And this is a major problem with our society. We seem to have confused love with live and let live. We've confused love with happiness in all things. We have been misled to believe that love is something completely unconditional. That's not something you'll find anywhere in the Bible. The great apostle tells us love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered. It keeps no account of wrongs. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, but, and this is the big but, love takes no pleasure in evil, but rejoices the truth. You can't love someone by taking pleasure or supporting them in their evil ways. If I loved my daughters that way, they'd sit in their chair and watch TV all day. But I know they need physical play to sit and dine at the table with their family uh, when we eat dinner and to read books, etc. Am I being unloving because I turn off the TV despite my daughter's insistent protests? Of course not. And neither is the Christian who judges one of his fellow Christians for much more serious things than too much TV watching because we're all part of the same family. Well, I'm a sinner, so does God love me? Well, of course he does. No matter what I've done, he abhors my behavior a good part of the time. <clears throat> but yes, 
He loves me and you, despite anything you or I have done. He loves every human being, so much so that he gave his only son for us. But God does not and cannot love our sin. We shouldn't for a minute believe that such love exempts us from his judgment, because his judgment is coming, because he is coming. And he is good with a capital G, so good that our word doesn't even capture it. And we, if we hope to be able to be in his presence, we must be moving toward developing that goodness in ourselves. Otherwise, we will be condemned, not because God hates us, but because his love is so strong and his goodness so great that we will simply not be able to stand to be around him. We all know situations like this where a child has rejected his or her parents' love because the rebellion in them cannot stand to be in the presence of that loving household. And yet, just as we are to rightly and lovingly correct our family, that is, our fellow Christians, Matthew 18 continues to show us how God loves us despite our sins. How he will welcome us home like the prodigal son. If only we can stop wallowing with the pigs. Then Peter came up to him and said, "How, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. And by that, Jesus does indeed mean infinite, unconditional forgiveness. Not unconditional love, just unconditional forgiveness. Yet this is also something we've gotten backwards in our society. We think if we do something to be forgiven, I have to do something to earn that forgiveness. That's completely wrong. To be forgiven, the one to whom the wrong has been done has to do something. Let me say that again. It isn't the wrongdoer who needs to do something to be forgiven. It's the person wronged. Jesus does not say to those he heals, repent and your sins will be forgiven. He says your sins have been forgiven. Now go and sin no more. By forgiving people of their sins, that of course does not mean that Jesus accepts the behavior. He most certainly does not. You must remember that you, you must remember that so you can be free in your forgiveness to others. Just because you forgive someone doesn't mean that you accept their behavior. And if that's not enough for you, we're told in the very strong words of today's gospel and other places, and even in the Lord's Prayer, that we should be very, very free with our forgiveness. Forgiveness is our greatest tool for mercy. There is no vengeance in forgiveness, no anger, no account of wrongs that endures all things. Wait, that means that forgiveness is love, love indeed. And that kind of love is bottomless and unconditional. We need to pour it out everywhere because we are forgiven only to the measure that we forgive others. And every one of us needs forgiveness regularly and routinely, even the holiest of those amongst us. By coincidence, today is also the feast of the most precious blood of Jesus, July 1st. This is a relatively new feast adopted in the 1800s. Even though it's not ancient, it's thoroughly orthodox. And there are extremely strong ties between what we are talking about today and the themes of that feast. Here's, that, here's the gospel for that feast from St. Matthew. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which we may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared, there, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, 
This is my body. When he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. What I think is most important in this passage is what's not directly said. That's who was sitting at the table. Yes, Matthew was there who would pin these words. Yes, John, the beloved disciple who would die in exile on the island of Patmos. Yes, Peter, who would be martyred because of his faith despite his three denials of Christ. But also Judas, who betrayed Christ, was sitting at that table that night. Most importantly, Jesus poured out his blood on Judas too. Even though, Judas, even though Christ knew that Judas would deny him. We know that Jesus' body and blood is the ultimate atoning sacrifice. That means it's the ultimate forgiveness we could receive. It is given out unconditionally, even to Judas, in the hope that each of us will receive it and then go and sin no more. We are called to receive that loving forgiveness whether our life is like that of John or Peter or even Judas in the story. So now that we understand more deeply love and forgiveness and their relationship to each other, there are a few other things we should discuss about today's passage before I close. First, even though I hope I've clearly laid out why we can and we must judge, this passage also makes abundantly clear that we should be very, very careful in our judgments. First, if we're going to judge, we must do it in love. And love is patient and kind, not angry. You have to be able to approach judgment with a calm, collected spirit. Second, just like um, second, just like the dread verse in James says that not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Today's passage is saying not many of us should become judges, because those who judge will be judged more strictly. But I hope I've made clear that when something is clearly wrong. We must stand against and we must work to heal our brothers and sisters within the church. Nevertheless, we have to start at home and with our own hearts. As the proverb Jesus quotes a couple of chapters before today's gospel reading in Luke, Physician, heal thyself. We must heal ourselves before healing others. We must not be blind to our own sins and failings, particularly if we're judging someone else on the same matters, when we are the ones with a log in our eye and they only have a speck. However, that does not mean that we can just try to live a life in ignorance and never work to heal ourselves because we are responsible for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must work for their salvation as much as ours. And we are all a family. That's why we say, brothers and sisters, all sons and daughters of God, all born into the family of God through baptism. No one is born a Christian. You must be born again to be part of that family, and you are. But with that comes the responsibility for your family. I'm sure most of you would do anything to save one of your family members, even if it meant your life. Well, look around. This is also your family. And as St. John says, by this we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Just as we would do for our fleshly families, we are called to do that for our spiritual families. And luckily, most of us will not be called to do that in either situation. But I want you to think this week what you can do to help save those in the family of our fellow Christians. Finally, if it's not been apparent, I've been focusing on the family. And these words that we've been talking about are just for us, for our fellow Christian brothers and sisters. 
Jesus has something else for us to do with respect to the rest of the world, outside the church. And he showed us how to do it, exactly how to do it himself. We don't murder people who disagree with our viewpoints as some extremists do. We don't go out into the world with signs telling people they're going to hell. Our non-Christian neighbors don't yet have the open ears and eyes to hear such a message. And we don't even go away into our secret compounds far from the world so that we can keep ourselves holy and pure. No. We have to directly engage with our non-Christian neighbors through nothing more complex than dining with them. That means spending time with them, real time, listening and interacting with others. Think about what it means to eat with someone, to share a meal, to, is to commune with someone. It is why we're so protective of the table of the Lord, because to eat and drink at that table is to come face to face with the living God. Something that we, even as Christians, should do in fear and trembling, even though we know that it brings that great forgiveness that we need, that love, the strength we need to journey on in the Christian life. But are you willing to invite a criminal into your home to sit at your dining table? Are you willing to have someone who's dirty and homeless? Are you willing even to have a sinner at your table? Even though, if we're honest, we know we're dining with one every day. Are you willing to really fellowship with others who are in so many ways different from you? And I'm not suggesting that you actually do some of these things right away. They could put you into physical or spiritual danger if you're not prepared. Which brings us back to what we've been talking about. You have to heal yourself first. But as your strength grows, you have to recognize that we are not sent out into the world to judge it. Jesus didn't ask those he dined with to change before he spent time with them. He went out to meet them where they were and brought them dignity, healing, forgiveness, and love. He didn't just throw money in a basket or stash it into an envelope so someone else could do it. He went out and did it himself. Now, we should continue sending money to others and to support those who are working tirelessly in the field of missions, evangelism, and charity work throughout the world. This is biblical too, it's holy, but so is engaging people. We can't just do one and ignore the other, and although we are a small group of people with limited time, energy, and resources, if we want to get bigger, I think our best way is to bring a few of the lost into our doors. We don't need to be extreme about it. We just need to help our neighbors who are living in the world lost, drowning in soul-sapping consumerism, whose only knowledge of Christianity is the false version they hear in our political rancor. Those who are exhausting themselves and their families in an endless cycle of trying to satisfy themselves with more stuff and more experiences. We have a place of rest and refreshment for them. We have a well of living water. We have the bread of life. We have the most precious blood of Jesus, which we celebrate specifically today. This is a hospital for sinners of whom we are chief. And if we simply focus on being Jesus to those around us, we will fill every seat in this place and before long be busting at the seams. So let us think hard together, convert those action, those thoughts into action on how we can dine with our neighbors and friends and help show them the good news that will ultimately open their hearts and ears and hearts to a life-saving message in the here and now and in eternity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.